Pop Health Podcast is a public service of 24-hour home care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special Social Work Month edition of Pop Health Podcast. I'm Gavin Ward, host of Pop Health Podcast, and in today's episode, I have the opportunity to sit down with Michelle Burns, a social work leader at Mayo Clinic Hospital in Arizona. I've had the opportunity to know Michelle over the years uh, after I first met her in Texas, of all places, back in 2018. Michelle shares a little bit about her unorthodox journey and how she ended up going from an intern in social work later in life, not necessarily in the early 20s like many social workers do, into a leadership role at what she calls the Ritz-Carlton of healthcare. Michelle ends today's episode with two very touching stories with shed light on the impact that social workers can make on patients' lives, often in very difficult and trying situations. We hope you enjoy today's episode where, again, we spotlight the work of social workers in this very special month of March, celebrating Social Work Month here in 2021. Thanks, everybody. Feel free to check out other episodes of Pop Health Podcast by visiting us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and of course, pophealthpodcast.com as well. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Michelle, thank you so much for joining the show today. It's my pleasure to be here. All right. So before we jump into social work and a little bit about your time at the Mayo Clinic, we'd like to get to know you a little bit. Um, share with us something outside of healthcare, like a fun fact. Sure. A lot of people don't realize that I am bilingual and that my mom is from Central America. She's from Costa Rica. And that uh, multicultural bilingual household serves me well. I don't usually advertise that in the hospital setting because then you're oftentimes called upon to translate and oh, yeah. not something I want to do. <laughs> nice. And being in Arizona, I can uh, guess you have a lot of Spanish-speaking patients. We sure do. And obviously, I will engage to build rapport, and I will do that. But again, following the clinical policy guidelines to have that mandated, you know, certified translator um, is always best practice for us. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And are those translators on site, or do you go through like a phone service? Uh, we have both. Okay. And it just depends on the day of the week, time of the day. Um, usually business hours, we do have, we have, a, we have an international office. Um, we have the translators that come out of that service, and then we have the language line as well, which is probably what most hospitals use. Um, okay. But we're fortunate to, to have a few different languages on site. Nice. That's great. Yep. So you mentioned your mom is from Costa Rica. Yep. Uh, I know we were talking previously that you're actually born and raised here. Correct. So are you from Arizona or? I am not. I've been here since I was in sixth grade and did the the basic beginnings of my roots in Iowa, believe it or not, small town, great childhood experience. I would wish that for more people, the freedom to run wild in the neighborhood. And yeah, that's kind of the gist of it. Nice. I've been to Waterloo, Iowa for work. Uh, my day job, we help some patients who have workers comp injuries and one of the company, the care management companies is based in Waterloo. So there is a casino I'm not sure where in Iowa you were, but yeah. it was the closest, probably popular reference point would be a Tumwa or or Pella, where they do the Tulip Festival. Um, okay. And Radar O'Reilly from Mash, I'm dating myself, is from a Tumwa, Iowa. <laughs> I think I'm very small town, um, probably probably an hour and a half to two from Pella. Okay. So. Okay. So you grew up in Iowa up until the sixth grade, and then as you grow up. 
what were you thinking of doing, you know, as you're maybe a teenager? What were you thinking career-wise at that time? I think um, initially physician was my thinking. I thought I'd be a great doctor. But then as I got older and realized it involved goo and guts and body fluid, I was like, no, thank you. So kind of bounced around, didn't really know um, what I wanted to do. Started a family. When the children were young, I realized you really need to finish that degree. So encountered a wonderful um, advisor at a local university and just kind of chatted with her. And she knew me outside of her work environment. And she's like, well, what do you like to do? So I kind of told her, you know, I like to help people. I really like volunteering. If I could just find the job that you get paid for doing that type of work and helping. Um, she goes, well, you've just identified a social worker. And I was like, huh, new to me. And I'm fortunate in my life. I've never had to have a social worker. Didn't really know any kids. And so I didn't know much about it. So she kind of gave me a little education. And, and I thought, well, that seems, you know, something that is right up my wheelhouse. And, you know, realized that my matriarch uh, on my mom's side of the family, all the women, they were unofficial social workers. That's what they did in the church. That's what they did, their volunteer work, you know, helping, you know, people in the community that needed help. And I thought, well, I can actually get a degree and be paid to do what all these women, you know, before me have done and maybe some of the men too. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of my pathway to social work. Okay, great. So you mentioned unofficial social work and you mentioned, you know, the family lineage. And it's funny, um, I bring this up from time to time when I talk with social workers. My wife's a third grade teacher in a low income district. And she's often, you know, it's probably not the same as a healthcare necessarily social worker, but she's often doing unofficial social work. And we'll get into more. We'll get more into social work here in a moment. So you realize that's something you want to do. You've had kids already. So you go back to school as not like an 18, 19, 20-year-old, um, but you're going back as a, a full full adult. And yep. you live there in Arizona, or where did you go to school? I did. I, um, I wrapped up some undergrad you know, classes at the community college because that's more cost-effective. And... I'd highly recommend that. Um, and then I um, wrapped up my bachelor's at ASU. And because my undergrad was in social work, I was able to apply for and was accepted to their advanced standing program for the master's social work program. And that was great because it was just, a, it was 18 months back to back. Like you, you didn't have two full years. You just did a consecutive, you know, did a little bit in the summer, spring, you know, the the fall, the winter, the fall, I mean, you just carried it through and that worked well for me. Um, kind of like nose to the grindstone type of individual. So it was a, it was a good experience. And then I, you know, had the two internships, you know, back to back. Um, so it's, it's a, it, it was a great opportunity. It worked well for me. Okay. And were you always thinking of uh, social work and healthcare or how did you make that connection? Um, so I have a lot of ties to law enforcement. Um, so I did an internship undergrad as a victim advocate, um, at a West Valley police agent, kind of Southwest Valley police agency. And that was an eye opener. Um, it was very frustrating, very shocking. Um, and I say shocking because to see the depth of, 
violence and abuse that happens generation through generation through generation. And it's kind of sad. And I correlate it to my own family experience. My generational heritage is helping, like I mentioned earlier, and how horrifying it is to have abuse be so normalized that the grandmother, the mother, the daughter, the great-granddaughter, it's, it's what they know, it's what it is, and it, that's their normal. And that is a tough road to hoe, and I don't think I could be in that environment long-term, yeah. knowing that it's really not going to affect change. Um, I have a great respect for law enforcement. They, they do a wonderful job, and the social workers that, that were working as the victim advocates, I learned a lot from them, but not my cup of tea, because I just, I think it's a very defeating um, population to deal with, and I think my my aha moment for that realizing that that wasn't for me was when I was walking into a class and I got a call from the field liaison that I was working with to tell me that a victim that I'd been working with, that they had found her body on a mattress behind the Circle K in the little city where I was working. And that hit me like a Mack truck. And I, I realized I'm like, I can't, I can't do that. So that was, um, kind of changed my trajectory. And as I started thinking about, well, what am I going to do? I just kind of fell into my lap to do an internship in a West Valley hospital. Um, and that really, it, the path almost picked me because I found the internship. It was close to home. It worked. I'm like, oh, I was doing a lot with inpatient and they had a labor delivery unit. And yeah. that was tremendous. I really enjoyed that. Um, you really get a lot of time, one-on-one -on -one time with the patients. And then you have the med the medical piece. Um, and then there was a dementia unit and I like the geriatric population. So I, I think it's a trajectory that you kind of have to just ride and then you find your niche along the way. Yeah. That your story uh, resonates with me. Um, my brother is in law enforcement. He also worked. Did he, he's not a social worker. He's a sheriff basically <laughs> a deputy. And he also like you, he couldn't after a little bit of time in that type of environment. And I want to, if anyone's listening and you know, someone who is in that type of environment, like God bless them yeah. for being able to serve that population. It is needed, uh, It is, but it is, it is tough. And I appreciate your, your vulnerability there, Michelle, with the audience, yep. and your honesty. Yep. Um, and that's the reality. Um, so you mentioned the Valley. So our audience is primarily comprised of listeners uh, we have international, technically, uh, but most of ah. yeah, uh, we have uh, one of our guests, uh, Karen Nelson, not sure if you know that name. She was involved with American Case Management Association, Society for Social Work Leadership and Healthcare. She uh, was a leader at Stanford, and she lives in Canada, so I know at least she listens. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, but um, uh, yeah, the majority, I would say a lot of our audience is not familiar with the greater Phoenix area. So when you okay. say, Valley, would you mind briefly explaining the geography? Here? Sure. So, um, and keep in mind, this is a social worker giving a geography lesson. So that right there, take it with a block of salt. So, uh, we are known as the Valley of the Sun and Arizona is a very flat, dry state. And when we say the valley, that really encompasses an area. It's a big area. And we have mountains to the north and south of us, as well as to the east and west. And everything within that really is the valley. So that makes up 
when you say a major metropolitan area, we have central Phoenix, which is in the central of the valley, and that is a long corridor, and you have the downtown area, which is a lot of businesses, um, you know, corporation, the, the tall high-rise buildings, and we have a downtown, midtown, and an uptown, so that in itself is a little spread out as well. Going north from there, you have residential areas, and then if you go west, you have cities that are called Peoria, Glendale, Avondale, Surprise, Goodyear, and and they really kind of just stack out almost like puzzle pieces. They fit together and they just move out to those valley, to the White Tank Mountains. And then going east, you have, you know, Paradise Valley, Scottsdale, you know, Ahwatukee, Tempe, Mesa, and all these cities. Um, some are um, unincorporated that are county islands. So you are either patrolled by a city law enforcement or a, a sheriff's department for the unincorporated. But so when you say the Valley, a lot of people say, oh, where in the Valley? Oh, I'm in yeah. Phoenix. I'm in North Central Phoenix. I'm in Scottsdale. So um, it's just a very large um, metropolitan area made up of a lot of smaller cities. And then um, people like to kind of identify, oh, I'm Scottsdale or no, I'm Paradise Valley. I'm Moon Valley because it's very specific. And when you are here long enough, you start to kind of understand that, oh, Scottsdale, Paradise Valley, Moon Valley, that's a little higher tax bracket than, let's say, some of the southwestern entities. I won't throw out any names out there. I don't want to offend anybody. But there there are some communities that you the, the, the tax bracket or the income bracket is a little bit lower and you might have higher rates of crime. So you get you get to kind of know East Valley, West Valley, and then Central. So well, I thought you did a decent job there with that geography lesson. Thank you very much. Of course. Um, so, okay. So you do your internship, the career finds you, if you will. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, you were a mom, you are a mom. So as you entered the social work field, following in a sense, your family footsteps uh, as unofficial social workers, uh, at what point are you thinking, Hey, I'm enjoying this. You know, I, I see myself moving up or becoming a leader in this field. When did that happen? So it, a couple things. I, a lot of people that, that know me that I've come up through the ranks with that I educated with, the joke was, boy, if I could be, you know, a student full time for the rest of my life, that is what I would love to do. So education is my passion. So when you look at leadership, I think that the leadership and the education, it's like a zipper. They go hand in hand because if you're not constantly educating, redirecting, affirming your team, um, you're not doing something right. So as I, as I moved through the different units and areas that I've covered and the different uh, settings and where in which I've worked, you quickly pick up on your own style and your strength. And I, I realized that a lot of times I was looked to as an unofficial leader or an informal leader because I would take the information and keep it, or I would pursue it and say, well, wait a minute, if we're doing a petition for guardianship or we're doing, you know, a legal guardian, and, and I just would look and find those tools that I needed to fill my tool belt, and I wanted to make sure that they were correct. So people would be like, hey, Michelle's done that before. Ask her. She knows how to do it. So uh, that piece of educating and offering support and guidance, to me, that's really leadership 
And, you know, I realized that partway through my career thinking, okay, I do probably want to pursue that at some point, but recognize that I'll only be as good as the strongest social worker, knowing that I needed more time to develop and grow and learn and, and get more tools in my tool belt um, to bring me to the position I'm in now. But that being said, there isn't a week or, that goes by that I don't learn something new. Yeah. I mean, all your, all your patient situations are obviously going to vary. So a couple of things you said there. Um, I want to I want to jump into you mentioned learning something new and we'll get into what social workers do in more detail here as we try to put a spotlight on it this month in March. Um, so Mayo Clinic is a you know world famous organization and um, I want to how about let me jump back a second what how did you eventually make your way to Mayo Clinic? So out of uh, grad school um, I lived in the West Valley and recognized that I didn't want a long commute and the, the kids were grade school, almost high school, and needing kind of to focus on that and do strive for that work-life balance that we all try to achieve. And there was an opening um, at the West Valley Hospital that I had interned at. So it was a nice segue. So I was able to put in for that position and I um, ended up working on the Jero psych unit um, which was probably the best thing that kind of landed at my feet. Um, it was four tens and I was doing the behavioral health piece and, and that's a strong environment to, in where in which to learn the human mental health, behavioral health, the impact it has on somebody's physical well-being. So being in that realm and learning, and I was probably, and I did some of the emergency department um, coverage at this facility, and then they had also a, a sister facility, kind of in this, it's Sun City, Sun City West area. So I would go over to that hospital and work their emergency department as well. So really getting a very well-rounded picture from the primary care on the Gerocyte unit, working some of the med surge floors, and then also doing some work in the ED, I quickly was forced to just round out my skill set. Um, and it was, I was independent. Um, there, wa there was supervision, but you were really left to kind of do your thing. Um, and that was a great role, but it, it, social work, unfortunately, sometimes you, there is a little bit of a ceiling where you kind of can't move anymore within a, within a setting. Okay. I had a colleague whom I went to grad, undergrad and graduate school with, and he actually had gotten a job at Mayo Clinic. He's like, you got to come over here. This is places like the Taj Mahal. It's, you know, it's like, it's the Ritz-Carlton. I'm like, what? So he was telling me about it. And I'm like, you know, I did my, started doing my research and I'm like, oh, that, that's impressive. They, they've really got quite the reputation. They do things well. The needs of the patient come first. I love the history of the nuns in Rochester and how they kind of started the caring piece. And so I thought, I, you know, I'll throw, I'll throw my hat in the ring. And, and they didn't have any full-time positions, but there were a bunch of supplemental. So I thought, I didn't need the benefits. My husband had the benefits. And the hiring manager at the time, um, you know, said, I could easily work you 40 hours a week. I'm like, I can do that. And so starting here, it just, it was an organic transfer, a process that happened. And, and being in that supplemental role I worked every single unit here and the ED and that is probably one of the quickest way 
to, to stretch out your skill set and your knowledge base. And I, I learned everything there was to know. I learned a lot of the key players. And then when a full-time position opened, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's some great. They put me into it. I worked the 4 East unit, which here is an oncology unit. And I hated it. And I, I will tell you that is the one population. And I think it, it's just a personal it, um, correlation. My father um, had a, a cancer. And when I would see these patients, I'm like, oh, it's the same, the yellow eyes and that skin color that they get ashy skin i'm like yeah i can't do this i only lasted on that unit for probably maybe two years and i told my i was very upfront with my manager at the time and i said i this is not a fit for me i do it and i'm doing it well but i need to <laughs> move on from here so then the med surge unit floor opened up and he at the time told me he goes do you still want to move i'm like absolutely so then i went up there and learned an inordinate amount of medical and it's funny because one of the doctors still to this day still still tells me i always think you're a nurse and i'm like no i'm a social worker and he goes okay but it's because i learned the medical piece because at the time social work was doing a lot of the discharge planning yeah um but yeah it was a great thing from there i transitioned to outpatient to general outpatient role which was monday through friday no weekend no holidays which that's like Ha, ah, you know, that's the cherry on the Sunday. And then took a, took a supervisory role, a working supervisor role. And then again, when my former manager was, he was ready to retire, um, you know, they, the leadership kind of looked to me and said, are you interested in taking that managerial role? And I thought, all right. So that's where I went back to my education. And I'm thinking there are a lot of things we could be doing differently. And, and, I will take it if I can try and, and effect change for the social workers to to really elevate the profession. So that's kind of in a nutshell the thread traced through to to you know where I am now. So so that is uh, I appreciate the detail. We got to see your whole journey uh, from you know from internship and uh, motherhood uh, into <laughs> yeah. social work. I also know you are involved or at least attend. Or you. Um, are you involved in the American Management Association at all? Yep. Okay. Just re- just renewed my membership. Okay. Awesome. Um, I Michelle and I for the audience. Uh, that's actually where I first met her uh, back in I think 2018. Uh, in Texas, right? Yeah, Houston, Texas. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you came. Well, the session I was talking at um, before I met you was like at 6:30 in the morning. I don't think I met you there. I met you. I was sitting at the same table at, at lunch. lunch. Yes. Yeah. Shout out to Eddie Landy, uh, ACMA. I hope I said your last name right. (laughs) Uh, So Mayo Clinic, let's talk briefly about Mayo. Um, Folks know about Mayo. You've talked about the different locations. Can you maybe just a high-level overview of Mayo Clinic? So again, I go back to my friend, (laughs) and he put it really well. He's like, do you want to work at Ritz-Carlton, or do you want to work at Circle K? I just, I kid, but it's, you know... And it's dangerous because, so a lot of the interns that come here, I I always have to remind them, if you do not end up working at Mayo Clinic and you work in another hospital system, it's going to be night and day with what you experience here. And they kind of, you know, look at me like, you know, you you guys are great, but are you that great? And I have to kind of back up and say, I'm not, I don't mean that in in a pretentious braggy, I'm not trying to brag but what you have to understand is the 
the way we do things here, and, and again, as big as life on the walls, you'll say the needs of the patient come first. And, and it, it happens every single day where if we're getting ready to do something and discharge as a social worker, you can step up and say, this is not a safe discharge because of X, Y, or Z in the home. And the physicians will go, oh, okay, thank you. They will hold that discharge until we can put into place what needs to be done to meet the needs of the patient. The other piece that I am, I am daily dumbfounded by, a lot of times patients will get a horrifying diagnosis and it's a valid diagnosis and the, the place where they're coming from will say, you know, you have maybe months to live or you maybe have X, Y, or Z. And they come here as that last ditch effort and the doctors are relentless and, it, and it's, it's, it's like a dog with a bone. They just don't stop until they get an answer or they affirm what the patient's known or we can offer alternative treatments. So I do feel that we go above and beyond across the board for what a patient needs to achieve optimum health. It may not be a cure, but we may be able to extend. Um, you know, there are also, there are many options available to patients here and, and it's deep what we have to offer in the ambulatory setting as well as the inpatient setting. And we have a, we have concierge medicine, the medallion practice, and we have our community internal medicine. We have a lot of different areas here and the specialties um, that the docs can dig and look and find and, and do their diagnostics and their testing to find what's, what truly is in the best interest of the patient. And if it is, hey, your other provider was right, we can offer some palliative comfort care then that might be the answer, but it's just really impressive to see how they really circle the wagons and take care of that patient and meet their needs. And the level of mutual respect that I have personally experienced as a social worker and witnessed from, from the CFO, you know, to the physicians, to our environmental services team members, the equity is there. And that to me is, is worth its weight in gold to see that equity among all the team members. Nice. You were definitely drinking the Mayo Clinic Kool-Aid. <laughs> just like, just like. Delicious. <laughs> so um, the, the name clinic. So I, you know, I've been in healthcare, you know, almost 20 years and I don't know of any other inpatient hospital that, has also the name clinic. I know you guys do a lot of things outpatient, inpatient. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that name. Maybe. So um, when you look at the history and the, the origins of Mayo Clinic and Ken Burns, no relation, <laughs> did, a, did a documentary and I'm going to give the guy a plug just because he will do more due diligence to the Mayo Clinic brother's story than I will. So when you're hired on at Mayo Clinic, at least pre-COVID, there's a general orientation and you get to watch this little film about May, the Mayo brothers and their father and how Mayo Clinic came to be. And it was originally a clinic. So that name and the heritage is strong and rich. So it has been the Mayo Clinic. So it's, it's Mayo, we're Mayo Clinic, Arizona. But then you clarify, well, you're going to be in the hospital or you're going to be at the clinic on Shea or you're going to be in the cancer building. But it is a clinic. And when you look at that, so if, if you send somebody here as a patient and they're coming for 
possible liver transplant or kidney transplant. And then we discover, oh, there's something else going on. Well, their nephrologist can then consult, we'll say ortho. And then those doctors are going to be able to team and talk. And you, you really, again, I can't, it's a zipper effect where the team comes together. So you have the oncologist, you have the urologist, you have ortho, and everybody's coming together to weigh in on their expertise and they call on each other. Even so much so, I've seen some of the doctors here will reach out to Rochester and say, hey, you know, we, we wanted to run this by you. This is what we're seeing. What are your recommendations? So when you, when you look at a clinic, a clinic is, in my opinion, somewhere where you can go and get everything taken care of. There's a pharmacy, you know, there's a vending machine, maybe in a smaller clinic where if you need a snack, you know, you have the nurses are there, you have respiratory, you have therapy. So that's kind of the sense of when I think of a clinic, a community clinic, but now blow that up and it's the hospital setting. It's, we're, we're a small city and, and you can pretty much get everything that you need when you're here, Yeah, we, you know, so you know, we have our, our, we have a library for the patients and there's computers that they can use and they can request from the librarian, hey, can you give me literature on what does it mean to have these calcified kidney stones and, and smoking cessation and, and it's, it is a one-stop shop. So it's kind of a, um, I, I just think that's probably the history behind the, behind the clinic. But again, Ken Burns documentary on the Mayo Clinic is, is, it's it's pretty impressive, and I would encourage anyone who has a minute to see it. I there's not enough time to go through all the uniqueness and neatness that is Mayo Clinic. Okay, well, you are definitely a good uh, promotional person for Mayo Clinic. <laughs> um, so, I want to jump into uh, patient care from a social worker's lens there at Mayo. I know one thing as we uh, prepared for today's show, you. Uh, a passion area for you is that transition to the community um, is I know a lot of people phrase it that way. You phrased it that way. So give us some examples. Uh, again, most people are in the healthcare world that listen to this show, but they may not necessarily work with social workers. So tell us you know, briefly, what are some examples of how the social workers prepare for that transition? So I think um, when we're looking from a social work perspective and looking through that lens, in the care management setting, you're looking at not only the patient that maybe just had an amputation. So the physicians are caring physically. The nurse case manager is looking clinically what special medications, you know, things are he, can, are he or she going to need. But the social worker is sitting there going, I have this human that has a new diagnosis, possibly a new prognosis, wife or husband might not be coping super well. So you're looking at the person in the environment that they are in and moving into. So if, if you cannot look at all the social determinants of health, you're risking missing something and them not having a successful discharge. Can they can they get in and out of their home? Is it a single story home? Um, are they going to be able to prepare meals? If not, who's there to help them prepare meals? Can they afford their groceries? Can they get to the store? Do they have somebody to get their groceries? So if you look at what you do from the time your feet hit the ground in the morning to the time your, pillow, your head goes on your pillow at night, if you can't do that by yourself, we have a problem. Yeah. So then we are going to bring in 
your caregiver. So maybe it's your spouse. Well, okay, but she works these days. So then we're going to help the patient troubleshoot to say, you know, do you have any adult children who, you know, is there a church group? You know, we can set up home health care, but they're only coming these days. So again, looking at that successful, safe ability to emotionally, mentally, and physically return home or whatever is your temporary home setting with the medical pieces in place that are done with our nurse case manager partner, and then making sure that the patient has the coping skills and, and the realistic emotional ability to continue this pathway to recovery. So again, ultimately, we don't want them to readmit. We always will accept them if they readmit, but the goal is to help them discharge and stay in the community and improve and regain, or if it's a new baseline, get used to it. So putting in place the safety net or the tools for them to be able to be successful is really, in a nutshell, what we're trying to do to help them. And then there are some that are, I'm great, you know, I just had my knee replaced, I don't need anything, I'm so glad to hear that. I noticed you don't have any advanced directives on file. This is a great opportunity. Can we chat about that? So they're, even if they're 100%, I'm great. I don't need anybody. I've got all my helpers. You know, I'm going back home. I'm an ambulance, et cetera. But the social worker is going to realize they don't have advanced directive. You need to think about advanced care planning. You're fine right now, but hey, let's take the opportunity. So you're always looking for that little crevice where in which you can kind of put yourself in as a social worker and fill in that little crack to make sure it's a smooth return to the community. So it makes sense. And thank you for giving those specific examples. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, and it's different with folks that I work with, but does, you mentioned the patient with the knee replacement um, that seems to be good. You mentioned the advanced uh, healthcare directives. Um, let's say they did have everything in place. They had, let's say they had means, they had all their legal papers in order. Will that type of patient, and they have family support, mm-hmm. will that type of patient be assigned a social worker if they have their house in order or will they not be assigned a social worker? So the way it works here uh, at Mayo Clinic is each unit predominantly has two nurse case managers and one social worker. And that's 36 patients, 18 per nurse and 36 for the social worker. So when we do our daily rounds and we are going through literally top to bottom, Mr. Smith is here for X, Mrs. Smith is here for Mr. X is here. And we're going through as a social worker, you're listening and you're thinking, okay, that was a a gallbladder removal. Okay. And then you're thinking, and that's a usually a same day surgery. So your flag might be, I wonder why they admitted them overnight. So you're going to listen to the presentation. Maybe he had fevers. Maybe he had, I don't know, uncontrolled pain. You're going to probably dig a little bit deeper with the bedside nurse. Hey, how's it going for Mr. So-and-so? Has he had a visitor? Is anyone calling to check on him? Is he appropriate? So you can quickly, almost like you're filtering something through you know, a strainer, run through your patients to see who you might think would need something. Okay. Bedside nurses. 110% know, hey, something's kind of off with this guy. They're going to place a social short consult and they're going to have us come see the patient. Okay. So we receive quite a few consults because a lot of times if a patient comes in, perhaps observation status, maybe that, maybe the gallbladder removal 
which is usually an outpatient procedure, ends up in a bed, the nurse is going to say, you know, I keep hearing him kind of yelling on his phone. We're going to get the call and we're going to go in there and say, hey, you know, glad you're doing better. We just like to touch base. Do you need any assistance getting a ride home? And we just kind of try to engage them in conversation. And a lot of times that's when things will come to the surface that maybe they have a food insecurity or maybe they've been out so much sick that they've missed work and we can talk to them about FMLA and short-term disability and how to approach their HR department if they have one, you know, or what community resources might be there to help them um, if they've been impacted financially by missing a lot of work. So again, it's chart review. It's hearing daily in our daily rounds about what each patient might need. It's consults from the physicians, the bedside nurses, our nurse case manager partners, a lot of times will identify issues. Um, it, it's, it's amazing where we get our consults from and it's truly everywhere within the hospital, but you absolutely can self-identify at any time. And um, every patient is seen at some point by a nurse case manager or social worker. So that partnership is that you can cross refer if needed. Okay, makes sense. Um, so at, we're getting towards the end of today's episode, Michelle, and I have two last questions for okay. you. Okay. Um, the first one is asking for a little, maybe a little bit of vulnerability, but what's, what's a story or a situation where you look back, whether it was as a frontline social worker or as a leader, where you say, Hey audience, this is a challenge that I had to deal with and something social workers have to deal with. So I will try to shorten it. Um, I had a very young patient, um, married two smaller grade school, grade school, but lower grade, um, probably maybe third, fourth. And she had been admitted multiple times. She had a cancer. It was an aggressive cancer. And she was very optimistic and very much the fighter. And on this particular admission, I recognized her walking the pod with her husband and her IV pole and moving very slowly and thinking in my head, boy, she doesn't look good. She kind of had a gray ashen color. So I go and find out that she's not doing well at all. She's really bad. She's got a rectal tube. She's got suction. She's got, um, you know, they're doing, they're tapping and, and draining because there's so much fluid buildup and going into the room to meet with her and her husband was there and there was another family member at bedside. And I said, so tell me what you understand is different about this admission. And she goes, I don't think I'm going to make it out of here. And I said, I don't think you're wrong. Uh, and we sat there for probably about five minutes and I, my arms were just covered in goosebumps. And it's like, what, what do you do other than be with them in their moment? And she kind of looked at me and she goes, I, I don't even know what to do. And I said, there is no right or wrong. I said, but what I would ask if you wanted to do is get a family member and, and maybe write some cards for your kids. She had a daughter and a son. I said, you're, you're going to miss some stuff. And she lost it and just started crying and broke down. And I had probably the biggest lump I've ever had in my throat, um, trying really hard not to cry, to, to just be present with her. And ended up, after being in there for a while and a lot of other stuff happened, getting a video camera from our... Um, 
video services department. And I thought they were just going to bring in something small. They brought in this giant tripod, like something you'd see like on a news scene with this big camera. They set it up and he tells me how to start it. I'm like, great. And then I tell the husband, I'm like, you want to push this button and this is how it's going to work. And he goes, wait, you're not staying. And I was like, um, I wasn't planning on it. And he goes, no, he goes, she's too weak to write the cards. We'd prefer you stay here. And I'm short, I'm 5'4". So I was able to crouch and literally stand under the camera because I was kind of in the dark. She sang the goodnight song to her children. She wished them well on their weddings. At your prom, make sure you wear this type of dress. Your hair looks cute. Like the, I mean, I have never had this sensation of an internal cry because you don't want, you can't lose it in a patient's room. Yeah. So to stand there, and I get a, I get a lump in my throat when I think about it now. And I was probably there till six thirty, seven o'clock at night. I'm usually I'm off at five, but you know what? It is what it is. And she transferred the next day to an inpatient hospice unit. The husband called me and said, we're renewing our wedding vows. Can you come? I said, I will try to be there. And I knew as I was saying it, that I was lying to him because I thought there's no way I can't. I had, that's where I had to draw the line. And luckily one of our chaplains was going and so I didn't go, but I heard it was beautiful. I heard it was, a, it was lovely. And then I get a call from one of the guys in media, probably two days after she passed away. And he goes, hey, I have the DVD for you of this patient. What do you want me to do with it? And I was like, well, make me like six copies. And we found a picture of her. And I said, can you burn that on? It was a picture of her with her kids. So in true Mayo Clinic form, apparently we have the ability to put an image on, like, like you buy a disc at the store and it has the band on it. Yeah. It had mom and the two kids. And I called dad, confirmed the address, and said, I'm mailing five of the six. If they don't make it, let me know. So this is probably seven years now. So I'm wondering. You know, have those kids found joy in that? Is it helpful to them? Is it hurtful? But that's one of those things where you did what you knew was right in the moment, but just still kind of second guess it because you wonder she looked so ill and was very tearful. And it's a it's a tough situation, but I have to think it was good yeah. and that it helped her and it might be helpful to her children in their adulthood. So it's what we do in the background. Yeah, that is a very touching um, story and a brave mom and awesome mom for doing what she did. Oh, she yeah. was, a, she's an amazing woman. Yeah. Um, so that might just go with my, that, I mean, that you may have answered my final question. Um, and that is, uh, you know, looking back on your profession, just tell a story that affirms why you do this. And so I don't know if that's the story that would do it, or if maybe, maybe in like a one to two minute uh, synopsis if there's another story you think. So that is probably one of the top ones. And there's another one where we had one of our physicians who was ill and her course was similar to the woman I just explained. And not only supporting her and her husband and her child, but also the physicians, her colleagues that had to take care of her. And I remember one of the last times she was admitted going into her room and neat young woman. And, and she knew me and I knew her as colleagues, but then our roles shifted and she had some tremendous back pain from the disease process as well as um, the radiation. And but writhing pain, like when I'm in there, she's, she's just, you know, and she looks at me and she goes, how do you do what you do? And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? You're, you're in 
pain that's 10 out of 10 and you're asking me this? I said, I just do it. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I said, how are you doing this right now? She goes, well, I don't have a choice. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I go, I go, I don't know. I go, maybe, maybe I need therapy. I don't know. And we ended up kind of laughing about it, but she was so serious. And I think kind of dumbfounded that I was in there with her. And I still kind of wonder, I'm like, how, where does that come from that you can be there and do that with a patient, you know, and then leave it. But I think the, the key to round out these two stories is you have to do two things. You have to tell somebody else and debrief. And yeah, you might ruin their day and they're going to be like, oh my God, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. But you get a little bit of it out. Yeah. And then part of this process, me sharing with you, and I also instruct at a local university, those tools in my tool belt are made up of these patients. And if I don't share their story to educate another social worker on how to handle that situation, I'm not doing them justice. So it's a, it's a process of continual debriefing and using those scenarios or tools as an education opportunity. Awesome, Michelle. Well, hey, great stories, very touching. You've given some really cool detail about your journey as a social worker and what social workers do, especially when they're transitioning someone to the community, which I know is a passion point for you. As we wrap up today, Michelle, you mentioned American Case Management Association, which you're a member of. Are there any other uh, plugs that you want to give? Obviously, you're drinking the Kool-Aid at Mayo. You plug them. Any other associations or your university that you want to uh, give a shout out to? So it's um, it's Grand Canyon University, and it's a great, they're working on their accreditation. Um, you know, I truly think just volunteering, go somewhere in your community that needs help and volunteer because that's, I mean, we have to be kind to one another. And I think that would be my plug is pay it forward, truly. I think that's kind of my motto, so... <laughs> Well, we've mentioned it a few times, Michelle, your family paid it forward and uh, I'm glad you're doing the same. A great episode. Thank you very much for sharing. Again, Michelle Burns has been our guest, a social work leader there at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Thanks again for joining today, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.